Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. These seven deadly sins of trumpery, we independently derive them from the evidence. But then once I had them, I'm like, oh, this is just uniquely American-flavored autocracy. Hi, and welcome back to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the law and the Supreme Court and the rule of law. And this week's show is actually about that latter topic, uh, about which I have been known to fret. So I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I cover the courts for Slate, and it is less than six months out from the midterm elections, a year plus out from January 6, 2021, a day which maybe should have lived on in infamy, but somehow manages to either be forgotten or dismissed or likened to just hapless tourists lost on the way to the Capitol gift shop, or just last week in the mouth of Senator Ted Cruz, likened to a peaceful protest in comparison to abortion rights protesters who are at the homes of Supreme Court justices. On January 6th of 2021, you had tens of thousands of people peacefully protesting, and yet the corporate media and Democrats slander them with the the made-up term insurrectionist. And yet, in this instance, they are not willing to call off their goons even now, even now as this has the potential to escalate and escalate further. But of course, it's not just about January 6th, and it's not just mass shootings rooted in the, quote, great replacement theory that Tucker Carlson keeps talking about and saying he never talks about. This is not just the Pennsylvania election this week in which a Trumpist election denier cruises to victory, not just Clarence Thomas, whose wife apparently was trying to set aside the Arizona election results in 2020. It's not just vicious racist claims that, yes, life begins at conception, but migrant babies do not deserve infant formula. It's not any one piece of this breakdown and corrosion of democratic institutions. It's all of it. And trying to wrap your arms and your head around all of it is really pretty tricky on your best day. It's almost impossible if you're trying to do all the other things like feed your family, 
answer even a tenth of your emails, say, keep your job, change the pillowcases, get tested for COVID. Look, none of this is super conducive to a contemplative survey of the big picture. Our guest this week is Norm Eisen, and he's going to help us paint out the big picture by numbers. He's going to talk about the new volume he's edited and co-written. It's called Overcoming Trumpery, How to Restore Ethics, the Rule of Law, and democracy. Now, later on in the show, Slate Plus members will have access to my conversation with Mark Joseph Stern, where we'll talk about the stuff that we didn't get to in the main show, including the Supreme Court's most recent intervention in campaign finance reform, score another one for Ted Cruz, plus a Fifth Circuit decision finding the SEC to be, well, incapable of functioning, and new abortion laws out of Oklahoma that will make abortion illegal anytime post-fertilization. If you're not a Slate Plus member, but you'd like to be, head on over to slate.com slash amicus plus. Membership comes with all sorts of perks, including ad-free versions of all of Slate's shows and never hitting a paywall on slate.com. And the biggest perk from where I'm sitting today is that you would be supporting all the journalism we do here at Slate, for which we are truly grateful. That's slate.com slash amicus plus. Okay, onward. Our guest today, Norm Eisen, has been contemplating the systems and patterns that define democracy and the rule of law, certainly since I've known him. And his brand new anthology is called Overcoming Trumpery, How to Restore Ethics, the Rule of Law, and Democracy. And one of the things he notes is that a defining feature of a style of governance that he calls Trumpery, by the way, which survives Donald Trump the man and which exceeds the harm of the Trump years, one of the defining features is a total disdain for the rule of law. So today, we're going to try to get him to connect some of the threads and to offer some fixes, big systems fixes on democracy and the rule of law. Ambassador Norm Eisen is a senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings, executive chair of the State's United Democracy Center, and a globally recognized authority on law, ethics, and anti-corruption. He served as special counsel to the House Judiciary Committee for the first impeachment hearings. He is author of A Case for the American People, the United States versus Donald J. Trump, And The Last Palace, Europe's Turbulent Century in Five Lines and One Legendary House. Norm Eisen served in the White House from January 2009 to January 2011 as special counsel and special assistant to the president for ethics and government reform and was U.S. ambassador to the Czech Republic from 2011 to 2014. Norm's been acting as counsel and advisor to multiple pro-democracy people and groups, and on days when I start to feel like I'm just wallowing, he is one of my go-to democracy Yodas. So, Norm Eisen, welcome back to Amicus, and thank you so much for this new book. Thank you for having me back. Thanks for all you do on Amicus and otherwise to keep us all informed about this turbulent scene. When I hear introductions, like your very kind one, sometimes I pause for a minute and I'm like, what, is that me? (laughs) I grew up in a little hamburger stand, my family business in Los Angeles with my migrant parents. And when I'm reminded of the incredible adventures that I've had in the six decades that followed that, I feel so privileged to be able 
to have done all those things and to do the work of defending democracy that you so kindly note and that is the subject of my new book, Overcoming Trumpery. So let's talk about the book because I have to confess, Norm, it was a pretty bracing reminder of like essentially a four-year crime spree that I've worked very hard to repress, including, you know, ethics violations, self-dealing. I feel like the last time you were on this show, we talked about emoluments, which feels almost quaint now in the face of what we are staring down. Can you by way of just setting the table for the conversation that is to come, walk us through these seven elements of trumpery, maybe define trumpery, and then walk us through the elements, each element of which you note, and I think I noted up top, is hardly limited to Donald Trump or the Trump administration itself. So true. Overcoming Trumpery was my first post-Trump administration book, And like many, I hoped that the staggering corruption of the Trump administration, emoluments were the original sin, we'll talk about that, and they factor in the book together with hundreds of other sins that we have cataloged and categorized. You know, when Trump was evicted and there was that brief moment of hope when his own party condemned the events of January 6th, which, as we'll talk about, they're the logical culmination of four years of his predations. I had a moment of hope that the country was really going to move beyond him. But it soon became clear, starting with the fact that you could only get seven Republicans to vote to convict in the trial in the Senate. It soon became clear that he was reestablishing his hold. And I think with this week's primary results, on top of what else we've seen, it's clear that the spirit of Trump has taken a hold. And that spirit is Trumpery. We, in this book, analyze it. I had 10 experts do deep dives on all of the things that went wrong the ethics violations, the disdain for the rule of law, the attack on the Justice Department. And even I was shocked when I waded through it all, the extent of it. It all stemmed from that first violation when before he was president, Trump said he was going to keep his businesses and he was going to take cash and benefits from foreign governments, emoluments, The only ethics rule that's so serious, the founders and framers put it in the Constitution. And that predicted all. And when you analyze what is trumpery, it's a a older word that is defined in the Oxford English Dictionary as deceit, fraud, imposture, or trickery. Something of less value than it seems. Worthless stuff, trash, rubbish. But it's very dangerous rubbish. And we looked at everything domestic and foreign, and we came up with these seven deadly sins. It turns out trumpery is not the random, ad hoc, chaotic, venal, reflexive corruption you might think. No, there's a method to the madness, Dahlia. And those thousands of examples fall into the following seven deadly sins of trumpery. It starts with disdain for ethics. It moves to the attack on the rule of law, lying 
shamelessness, sacrificing the public interest to personal and political selfishness, exacerbating, fanning the flames of division, and all those six precursors wrapped up into one big final explosion of trumpery, the seventh deadly sin that we saw in the post-2020 election period and indeed in the run-up attacking democracy itself. Those are the seven deadly sins of trumpery. And as we'll discuss, in fact, I have a new op-ed in Slate this week talking about it. Trumpery continues to rage strong. It has become the dominant ideology of the Republican Party, tragically. One of the things that you just hinted at when you were reading this sort of definition of how it's little things, shiny things, silly things, things that shouldn't matter but do. And I think one of the threads I want to pull on is the ways in which the silliness gets in the way, right? His artlessness, the dumb Kofeve stuff, the dumb Sharpie markers changing weather maps, that there's a way in which all of this looks deeply childish and cartoonish and that it can't possibly be a serious threat to democracy because it all just has that edge of just being a joke. And I know one of the points that you have made for years and that you're certainly making again now is that even if you concede that that stuff is silly and trivial, which we don't concede, it paves the way for the non-silly, non-trivial version of it to come, right? That in the hands of Ron DeSantis, this is not silly or trivial. This will be a lot more than Sharpies and a lot more than yeah. blurted out truth. After having studied everything, I think he embraces Kofebe. He made a joke of it. I think it's part of the genius of Trump. There's a sort of reptilian, I don't think it's highly reflective or planned, but he seizes his brainstem, seizes those opportunities to both obscure his philosophy that has these seven features and to promote it, to drive it forward. He serves you a side of sick humor with his authoritarianism. And I should say that this is these seven deadly sins of trumpery. We independently derive them from the evidence. But then once I had them, I'm like, oh, this is just uniquely American flavored autocracy. Right? It's an American style of autocracy. At any rate, the book analyzes it, and it turns out there's the trumpery of the Trump administration, there's the trumpery of the effort to overthrow the election, culminating moment. Then there's the new trumpery, and this week we were in the midst of that with perhaps its foremost advocate. There's no one beyond Trump who is a greater driver of trumpery of the big lie of the election and these other frauds than Doug Mastriano, who's now the Republican gubernatorial candidate in Pennsylvania. He is going to be in charge of one of the most important bricks in the blue wall if he wins. And he's already joking with supporters. There's a video of him 
one of his supporters joking and he's laughing about the 20 electoral votes in Pennsylvania. So we need to study the past so that we, to paraphrase, so that we can learn from its mistakes and prevent it from recurring. And the book is also full of solutions. And I want to talk about those because I'm very flattered that you say you're someone I turn to for a cheerful take on disaster. But I do have some optimism about solutions to this new, if you will, the new mutation of the virus of Trumpery, the post-Trump Trumpery. So I do, I, I in fact, asked you to come to do the, the uh, sunny side, but I do have to ask one more question. And maybe you've just teed it up for me, because I think by disaggregating this away from Trump and creating a kind of mathematical formula, what you're doing is help predict. And as you say, then you can use these seven lenses, seven kind of types of governance to really understand other phenomena. And I do want to give you a minute to elaborate on Justice Alito's leaked Dobbs opinion, because when the draft opinion came down two weeks ago, ostensibly that has five votes to overturn Roe, uh, your first instinct was to say this is a trumpery decision. And because yes. this is a show about the Supreme <laughs> Court and the law, I just want to give you a second just to show your work. Show us how you apply these principles of trumpery governance or leadership and how they apply to Alito's draft opinion in Dobbs. I will tell you, I don't have too much optimism to share about Dobbs. I just think what's happening is just heinous that trumpery has crept onto the Supreme Court. But when I read the opinion, I started cutting and pasting bits in my notes uh, using the trumpery framework. And I found that everything that I hated about that opinion, and this is what I wrote for Slate, everything that I hated about that opinion fit the Trumpery model. And of course, the prior dance with Trumpery when Trump and his allies attempted to get the Supreme Court to do a repeat of Bush v. Gore and take up the Ken Paxton-led election challenge, which was madness, only two justices favored taking it up. They didn't signal how they would rule, but that was Alito and Thomas. And now we have some more light on Thomas's corruption because of what we know about his wife's involvement. And Alito, now from reading Dobbs, we know that Alito has gone full trumpery, okay? He's adapted these seven deadly sins. I thought that the piece was an assault on the rule of law because it's one of the most vicious attacks on stare decisis that I've ever seen. Listeners to your podcast know that that means the principle that the rulings of the Supreme Court become settled law. And it shows utter disdain for the truth. It's packed with disinformation and false statements about pregnancy and adoption and the availability of resources for poor women in particular and women of color. He doesn't tiptoe. It's not gradual. It's just a brazen overthrow of settled constitutional law. It's his personal doctrine. I found an old, I linked in the Slate piece to an old story about his mom, an interview with his mom describing his anti-abortion beliefs. I have religious beliefs too. 
But I don't foist them. When I was in government, I didn't foist them of the White House or the embassy. Um, and on and on through the seven deadly sins of Trumpery, culminating in the attack on democracy itself. This is a body blow to the credibility of the Supreme Court, the stability of the separation of powers, and the continuity of our institutions. And he has done tremendous damage, not just to women's lives, which is horrible, but also to all of our lives. It affects all humans if it becomes the final opinion, the decision, and it deeply damages our democracy. Trumpery in action, all seven deadly sins. We'll be right back after these messages. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. Norm, I want to start the conversation about fixing things. Because as I said, we're not here to wallow. But I do want to offer up government itself as a place we need to start. And the way I want to do that is to just point out that new polling that just came out this week shows, unsurprisingly, 64% of Americans don't want Roe v. Wade overturned. 14% of Americans believe that gun laws should be less strict, but the Supreme Court, I think in Bruin, is poised to massively weaken gun protections. And here we have Justice Alito helpfully writing in his draft opinion in Dobbs, hey, if you don't like this result, vast majorities and pluralities, get out there and vote. But Norm, of course, it was Justice Alito who authored last year's Brnovich decision constricting voting rights. It was Alito who signs off on Shelby County doing away with Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. It's Alito who blesses political gerrymanders. It's Alito who blesses dark money uh, sloshing around in government. Every single talk I have given since Dobbs came down, I have said some version of the following. We have five of the six Republicans on the Supreme Court appointed by justices who are seated by a president who lost the popular vote, but because of the vagaries of the Electoral College, still got to be president. They were then confirmed by a malapportioned Senate that then joins together as a Supreme Court to make it harder and harder for majorities to win elections. This is, Norm, a systems problem. This is not an abortion problem. It's not a gun control problem. We have a government that is now working hand in glove with the Supreme Court to shrink majority rule. So before we get to the fixes, I need you to tell me what we do. And I know you talk about filibuster reform, and I know there are ways to think about 
how we fix the Senate, what we do about the Electoral College. But what do we do about the fact that government itself was constructed to do precisely what it is doing really well right now, which is make sure that some people don't vote and that other people, often tiny minorities, get what they want? Well, you know, the post-Trump exercise of the seventh deadly sin of Trumpery, the assault on democracy, it's the new Jim Crow. So it's resuscitating Plessy v. Ferguson, the infamous case that allowed uh, racial segregation. So I, I, I offer that reflection, and I do want to talk about short, medium, and long-term fixes, including to this, because there's always been a deep strain of American law, but it... Uh, applies really to every dimension of American existence. There's a deep strain of our law that has been profoundly regressive from the beginning of the legal system. And it's contained in American society in the protection of powerful minorities. And that's why we didn't have in the early decades of our politics of the post-constitutional era And by the way, this is something that the regressive forces want to return back to with the independent state legislature theory. You didn't have direct vote for our senators and our representatives as you do now. So even the idea of voting was contested. And then you had not just the racial element, you had property limitations, gender limitations. That's just one of these seven deadly sins. So I think that this is a very familiar battle that we're engaged in. And I do make the point in overcoming Trumpery that Trump simply exploited and accelerated some trends while adding to them and putting in new developments and new um, new breakage to create Trumpery, this philosophy of corrupt governance that, as you noted earlier, God help us if a DeSantis, a Hawley, a J.D. Vance... They're intelligent, they're Ivy League educated, they genuinely got into the Ivy League, unlike Trump, and they've learned from him. All of that brings us, though, the hopeful part is the short, medium, and long-term solutions. You see, I'm so congenitally optimistic. It's a methodological bias, Dahlia. (laughs) I cannot talk about the crisis. My brain just turns to the solutions. That's how I get out of bed in the morning. Let's do it. Can you imagine what it was like writing this book and having to wallow in almost 400 pages of all the terrible things that happened in every dimension, the 10 worst dimensions, domestic and international, of trumpery? I mean... Only through designing solutions could I survive. So let's do it. Let's do the solutions. Let's do, should we start, I feel like we should start long-term, but maybe we should start short-term since there's a sense that the clock is ticking and that midterm election is bearing down upon us faster than we can do accountability. Unless we get the short-term, right? There will be no long-term. Exactly. I think hope for overcoming trumpery comes in four boxes. Short term. The book is bristling with short, medium, and long-term solutions. I forced all my authors and myself, I told them all, do not just describe what happened in your area. Don't just give me the analysis of the problems. I want solutions, short, medium, and long-term. And I don't care if we can't get them now. You put the solutions in there, so there's a book with 
for posterity. And you know, they kvetched. And I had to send some of these chapters back to get the solutions. And by the way, to make it readable, I said, tell a story in your area. Don't just give me a list. Tell a story of what happened. I think it's very readable. Short term, hope comes in four boxes. The tally box, the cable box, the ballot box, and the jury box, okay? What do I mean? The tally box, tally sheets, as you know, are what Congress uses and state legislatures use to pass laws. And I'm still hopeful that we will, even though we didn't get the big democracy reform package we wanted in this Congress, there's a very vibrant bipartisan effort in the House and in the Senate to bipartisan, bicameral effort to reform the rules that Trump tried to exploit. And it's called the Electoral Count Act. But to do an Electoral Count Act Plus package, where you combine that with dealing with some of the worst things we're seeing now, the threats to election workers, the need for more money for safety, like the worst aspects. So ECA Plus, okay, there's hope for that in this Congress. And the book is also full of not just legislation, but regulatory ideas that pro-democracy officials in the states of both parties, governors, AGs, secretaries, legislatures, that they can work on and pass and implement. The tally box, that's number one. Okay, number two is the cable box. The January 6th hearings are coming. This is a once in a generation opportunity to educate the American people and the world about not just January 6th, I don't even like that name, the January 6th committee. It's really the insurrection. They should call it the insurrection committee. And insurrections are not the work of a day. We know what happened on January 6th. There's some questions. What was Trump doing during those mysterious 187 minutes when he was silent? There's questions about January 6th, but the biggest questions are about the run-up to January 6th and the aftermath. The insurrection hasn't ended, Dahlia. I write about this in the book, the big lie attack. And we see this in the wins of candidates like Vance in Ohio, like Mastriano, like the Trumpery advocates who succeeded in North Carolina in this cycle, and many more down the pike. Georgia is a Trumpery ticket with Herschel Walker for Senate, David Perdue for governor, and Jody Heiss for secretary of state. All in various forms embrace the big lie. Trumpery is on the ballot. That's the third thing. But to set that up, the cable box, the January 6th committee must tell that story before the insurrection, the day of the insurrection, and the continuation of the insurrection driven by Trump's big lie, his what a federal judge has now found to be a likely criminal conspiracy, an attempted coup that hasn't ended. They're setting up for the next coup. Telling that story effectively, and I think they'll do it, brings us to the ballot box. Like 2020, you mentioned my previous book, A Case for the American People. That book explained the first impeachment on trial in terms of making a case. We knew we weren't going to get 67 senators. So why did we do it? We wanted to make the case to the American people. Turn the 2020 election into a referendum on democracy versus trumpery. 
the ballot box, 2022, the general election is going to be enough, another referendum. So American people are going to be called on. I think they'll repudiate Trumpery. That's why I think Trump has to be front and center. One of the things this model does, I'm not on the people who say, no, never talk about Trump. No, he needs to be Trumpery, not Trump. Trumpery needs to be a part of every conversation. 2024 is going to be a referendum on both Trump and Trumpery, because if he's alive, he's running. That brings me to the fourth box of hope, the jury box. I've written several long analysis and innumerable op-eds, including my op-ed this week in Slate. Trump is very likely going to get prosecuted, at least in Georgia, by the Atlanta, the Fulton County DA, Fonnie Willis, who has a very advanced and very good criminal case. The Georgia statutes fit in a simple case, Dahlia. He's told Brad Raffensperger to just find 11,780 votes. Even if he believed he was ripped off, you can't take the law into your own hands any more than if a family member got assaulted I'm allowed to go do vigilant. It's vigilantism, right? Now, he also did not believe he won. But that's a perfect case because you don't have to prove his intent. All you have to do is show he wanted to fabricate one more vote than Biden had. You can also prove his intent, I think, beyond a reasonable doubt. And Georgia law is a very tight fit. As I wrote for Slate this week, I also think the DOJ slowly, carefully, myself and my wonderful co-authors, Stuart Gerson and Dennis Aftergood, experienced prosecutors. Stuart was a very senior DOJ official, Republican one, may I add. That's why we explain that DOJ in its own slow, methodical way, Garland has built up the political capital of DOJ, and we think he's about to expend it on a very serious investigation of Trump. And Based on looking at the evidence, I think there's also a good federal case to go with the state one, and I think we'll see more state cases. We are going to pause now to hear from one of our great sponsors on this week's show. It all feels like it's too late, Norm. It feels as though, you know, you are hoping that people are going to be infuriated and activated by July and they're going to race to the ballot box in November. And for folks like me, and this is the kind of Lucy football confession, because if you wake up happy every morning, I wake up and then just vodka shooters back to bed. And I think the thing that I'm worried about is we've done all this in both impeachment uh, trials. We know what happened in that call uh, to Brad Raffensperger because we all heard it. Uh, We know what happened on January 6th because we all saw it. And so there is this sense, and I deeply understand what you're saying, which is folks need to see it. They need to hear the story. They need to be reminded of the visceral horror of it. And here's me saying to you, At the same time, we have elections officials quitting en masse, we have states choking off the vote, and we have this sort of foot race between the values you are suggesting, which I agree, won 2020, and then efforts to make it even harder to win in 2022. And so I guess I want you to reassure me that in this foot race, A, the things that you are talking about, all of your four boxes, are salient and timely. It's all going to happen in time. And that, B, it's somehow going to overmaster what feels like a really 
dangerous push from, I think, arsonists on the other side who don't care about institutions the way you do. Uh, and that we're well, going to get there on time. It's a very profound question. It, in my view, it is the single most profound question in American public life today. And it is mirrored internationally by a similar version of the question about the Russian and Chinese assault on the international rule of law system. It is a mistake to view Ukraine as only a Putin endeavor, just as Trump requires a lot of enablers and colleagues, so does Putin and China is first among the enablers. He couldn't do it without China. But be that as it may, I will answer your question for the United States. and <laughs> We'll leave for another day Ukraine, which is the other most important because of Ukraine, but also because of the larger implications for the global system within. And by the way, the world is looking at your question as well, because without America, you know, the international blue wall also falls apart completely. If Trump were in office, Putin would have had his way with Ukraine and much more. Okay. So now to answer your question, we know that we can succeed in 2022 and 2024 and beyond in defending democracy as a nation because we survived the dry run, the spring training of autocracy, the regular season, let us say. We know we can now survive the playoffs with the Super Bowl coming in 2024, because we won in 2020. And I think that it would have been nice. We didn't have that federal democracy protection package, HR1, the Senate S1 and its various analogs, including the John Lewis uh, voting rights revision A lot of people wrung their hands, but we had an assault on democracy led by someone in the White House, Dahlia, in 2020. And I was privileged wearing my State's United Democracy Center nonpartisan hat with my bipartisan wonderful partners, including former GOP governor and cabinet member Christy Todd Whitman, to be a part of all that. I wasn't only observing, I was helping speak out for the state officials of both parties who were the key in the states, joining with the American people of both parties to defend our democracy. We can do that again. The elements are there. And indeed, in some ways, the system is weaker because this formula, Dahlia, they have a, a formula. It's a playbook they're running again, the autocracy playbook. They tried in 2020, led by Trump, to attack the rules. That's why they went to court. That's what they thought the Supreme Court was going to do, those 63 losses. To attack the referees, they viciously pressured the election deciders at the state and federal level, up to and including Mike Pence himself. And why? To change the results. That's all they're doing now. It's not fancy. States United this week had a huge new report out with Protect Democracy and Law Forward, uh, Democracy Crisis in the Making. We've been revising it now for over a year. We publish it roughly every quarter describing these trends. They're trying to change the rules. That's what all these 
election bills, hundreds of them around the country, pressure the refs. We have another report called Replacing the Refs at States United so they can change the results, right? The same coalitions, bipartisan coalitions that saved us in 2020 can come together again in this great referendum at the ballot box, nonpartisan, in 22 and 24 to do the right thing. And that is why I believe that these four boxes of hope, including the hundreds of Republicans who've cooperated in the cable box, the 1-6 investigation, the bipartisan negotiations going on now for an ECA plus package in the tally, congressional tally box, and the uh, ballot box, and where you have Republican leaders like Stephen Risher in Arizona, and finally, the jury box. This is not, not a partisan thing. I'm sure when juries convict, uh, I'm sure there are Republicans on the special grand jury that's sitting in Georgia right now evaluating Trump. I think that the jury box, it's the genius of the American system. They will do the right thing. I believe the hearings will show there's proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I have hope. It's very funny, Norm, because when I asked you that last question, my producer sent me a note on Slack saying, oh, you made him sad. And so I'm very glad that you rallied and prevailed. Before I am forced to release you back into the world, I do want you to answer the question that I know you get a million times a day. We get it all the time on this show, which is that you are talking about huge systems fixes, right? You're talking about reforming the Electoral Count Act, and you're talking about massively rethinking filibuster reform. And people want to connect that to an action that they can take today. And, you know, I often say, like, these systems are big, and they're wonky, and they're complicated, and they're multifaceted. And that's a really unsatisfying answer. I want you to give them a better answer than these are huge machines of democracy that need to be fixed. Pick up a lug nut and go. <laughs> Tell them what the lug nut is. Uh, yeah, we no, we talk about the need for filibuster reform. And we were two votes away from changing a st structure not contemplated by the founders and framers of our Constitution. They would be shocked at these supermajority protections, I believe, in the Senate. But we were really just two votes away from changing that. The baseline has been moved. Let's preserve what we learn. Let's save it for the future. The next time there's a Democratic majority in the Senate, particularly if it's 52, 53, somewhere in that range, filibuster is going to be changed for democracy reforms. But there's a role for every listener to this podcast in those four boxes of hope. Pay attention to what you're about to see on the cable box. Share it. Some of your listeners are in the position to do more than just pay attention. They're in the position to do things about it. But there's a role for everybody in, in what is we're about to learn in the 1-6 hearings. Explain to everyone, tweet, Facebook, Instagram, shout from the roofs. This is not a one-day affair. This is a three-part insurrection. The run-up to January 6th and the ongoing big lie afterwards. The knowledge, the truth, very important. Number two, the legislation that's going to move, insist on a, a decent ECA plus package, and then support. It matters. I worked in Congress. I've worked in Congress on and off, including 
my whole career, including for a year as impeachment counsel. They pay attention to what people say and think. Let them know. Your listeners have the ability to drive a real, not a naked ECA. That's no good. It's got to have that strong plus package protecting election officials' money and whatnot. Number three, vote. Tell everyone to vote. Support candidates. I don't care what party. I spend more time all day long with Republicans than I do in these bipartisan coalitions than I do with Democrats. We need to support the great candidates of both parties. I'll say that in my personal capacity only, by the way. And then finally, to those jurors out there, to the constituents of these prosecutors, don't let your prosecutors do what Alvin Bragg did and give up a case where he had proof beyond a reasonable doubt of Trump's financial crimes because he apparently didn't want the political hassle of fighting with Trump. And then at the end, the possible risk, it happens, of losing. Embolden our officials. Give them a pat on the back. Thank them for investigating. You shouldn't talk to them about cases if you see them in the supermarket. But how do you do that? The community. Speak up at the places where you are. Please don't talk to them if you happen to see the attorney general or the Fulton County DA about the case. You'll get a a very agitated security person who will suddenly show up. But do create a climate of support for them. And then, of course, ultimately, you know, study the facts if you think there's proof to prosecute, say so. And some listeners of this podcast may get a jury notice. Please show up and do your jury duty. I'm actually going in for jury duty, which I'm very excited about in a few weeks. Do your duty. So you can help fill those four boxes of hope. Norm Eisen, you are the tigger to my Eeyore, and I thank you. I really needed it, and I want to tell folks to go out and get themselves a copy of Trumpery. It's not only, I think, a map of what has happened, but a real (laughs) guidebook to how to avert it in the future. Norm, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Dahlia. Ambassador Norm Eisen is a senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings, executive chair of the States United Democracy Center, and a globally recognized authority on law, ethics, and anti-corruption. He served as special counsel to the House Judiciary Committee for the Trump impeachment from February 2019 to February 2020. And his book, Overcoming Trumpery, How to Restore Ethics, the Rule of Law, and Democracy. And that is a wrap. For this episode of Amicus, thank you so much for listening in, and thank you so much for your letters and your questions. Keep them coming, and you can always keep in touch at amicus at slate.com or find us at facebook.com slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio, and Ben Richmond is senior director of operations for podcasts at Slate. We'll be back with another episode of Amicus on June 4th, when we will start coming to you weekly as the Supreme Court's term hurdles toward its conclusion, and we are overrun with big decisions, hoping that you can join us then to try to navigate the last few weeks of the Supreme Court term. When you need 
mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.